This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, this is Drew Wong, uh, a project manager with The Law School Show. And today I'm interviewing Professor Heather McLeod Kilmurray. Um, so let's start with an introduction. Who are you and what do you do? Um, I'm an associate professor at the uh, Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa and also a member of the Center for Environmental Law and Global Sustainability that we have here. So um, I mainly do environmental law, but I also teach first year torts in a small group, which is one of my favorite things. I've done that every year since I started here. And I also teach an upper year course on climate change um, and legal change and a graduate seminar on sustainability and the law. And I've also taught uh, administrative law in the past as well. Okay, so your focus is really about the environment, um, which is something that I feel all law students should know about and engage in at this stage because we are at a very interesting tipping point in our, our, our world. Um, so could you describe yourself outside of law? Uh, outside of law, um, I have uh, two boys, and they're very avid hockey players, so that takes up a huge amount of our family time, and it's a lot of fun. Um, apart from that, I love to read, I like, I love music very much, um, and I love to travel. Um, so that I spend a lot of my time doing that type of stuff. So there, there you are. So you're in the environment when, when you're not engaging with the law. Right. <laughs> that's that's great. Um, so. One of the things we're really interested in here at the Law School Show is your career history and sort of the evolution of how you got to where you did. So can you tell me about your career from the moment you finished the LSAT to now and what has led you to be a professor? Sure. I have to start just a little bit before the LSAT because I always, always wanted to be a teacher. And... Um, so I wrote, I wrote the LSAT and I applied to Teachers College at the same time to cover my best, and uh, I got accepted to law school, which was really which was really exciting. So that I, then the path has been how to get it turned into a law teacher as opposed Fair. to a, as opposed to a regular Absolutely. school teacher. Interesting. Yeah. So I went to I had my undergrad was in political science, and I went to law school. And I did do a little bit of environmental law, but this was in the early 90s, so there was only one course. So I took that course, that's all there was. Um, And then I uh, spent a summer at a big law firm in downtown Toronto, and then I got to clerk at the Federal Court of Appeal. Interesting. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So from there, I applied from within the Justice Department and got to work um, at the Ministry of the Environment here in Ottawa for about a year. And so I was already interested in environmental issues, but that really focused it. But I still wanted to pursue the academic path. So after about a year at Environment Canada, I went and did my master's at Cambridge University with a focus on environmental issues. I took uh, the environmental law course there as well as some EU law, and I got my thesis published. That was my first publication. So that at was Cambridge. in a journal. Yeah. Wow. So that was what fun. an accomplishment. That was fun. Well, what's Cambridge like? It's great. It's a really interesting place. It's uh, It's... You know, you, you just feel, because it's so big and it's at the same time so focused just within itself that you just feel like everybody in the world is a student. And, really? And uh, it's it's very beautiful, so it kind of inspires you to do your studying. And, uh, yeah, so many different interesting departments, people in the LLM class from all over the world. 
So in environmental law, for example, we had a, a, quite a large group of Nigerians and we started talking about oil and gas and they had all these different perspectives. Everyone has their own anecdotal yeah, sort of very, insights about the, yeah, the that whole was thing. Great. That's amazing. So then I worked at the municipal level in England for a while, which was also really interesting, and then uh, went on to the, do the PhD. PhD and then mm-hmm. landed landed here at U yes, Ottawa. Yes, luckily. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's great. No, yes. we're really glad to have you here, and I've been fortunate enough to have you as a teacher in Torts in the small group, and had a great year and learned a lot of amazing stuff. So, um, so what are your areas of focus and interest in environmental law? Yeah, there's been a few. Um, I've, two of the main things that I've been really interested in are the the oil sands. Okay. Um, so I've done a little bit of work on that, about the costs and benefits of oil sands, the regulation um, of oil sands. But then also, I've done quite a bit of work on this emerging area of food law. So we've done um, some work on GMOs, some work on industrial factory farming, uh, vegetarianism and animal rights, that type of thing. So all of those issues that sort of tie into food law. But of course, toxic torts is a huge area that's been a lot of fun working with Professor Colin. Okay. Um, and so what, where does this passion for environmental issues come from? So why do you think it's so important that we, that we need to be um, exploring these different areas in the law and taking specific steps to, let's say, regulate the production of GMOs or oil sands, aside from the obvious? Yeah, I mean, some of the, some pollution is inevitable. And I guess some of it's intentional, but I think one of the big concerns is a lot of the, the, the pollution or the harm that's unintentional and that seem, people seem to feel is a necessary element mm-hmm. of production and consumption and growth, etc. And so I think that what role can, I mean the law plays a lot, uh, the law plays a big role I think sometimes in locking us into systems that might not be working. And so I think it's a good idea to explore maybe some of the problems that the law is causing, but then also try to explore ways that the law can try to facilitate more sustainable approaches that can have win-win outcomes for, for uh, you know, producers, consumers, for this generation and the next. And so it's very complex. And of course, one thing we try to emphasize in the climate change course, for example, is how multidisciplinary it is and how much lawyers need to have at least a basic awareness of the relevance of science and economics mm-hmm. and politics that all play into this, these environmental issues. But I think it's really important to try to understand and to try to communicate to students uh, the role that the law plays as a system of rules, as a structure of governance in maybe making some pathways seem inevitable or locking down other pathways that, that seem inaccessible. And yet some of these structures were just man-made. There's a lot of them are very recent and can probably be changed with some thought and some uh, So trying to, trying to understand how the law can immobilize essentially, uh, you know, the efforts of individuals to try to essentially um, be proactive about change or things that aren't working. Yeah, to be aware of that and then to try to help change so that the law is actually a, a change maker and helping us to move forward uh, in more sustainable ways. And would you say that we're taking steps now to change the law and the environment to move towards more sustainable models and win-win situations with consumers and producers? I mean, I think it's difficult, but I think particularly with the new federal government, people are feeling quite hopeful that not only are they responding to to calls, but are actually seem to be spearheading some new ideas. I also think that there's an increasing pressure internationally that it's it's harder to say no to these types of 
interests because they 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 affect trade and and mm-hmm. international relations as well. So, if you have more of a consensus moving toward one goal, hopefully each nation can try to participate. But I think Canada used to be more of a leader in that area, and we we sort Unfortunately, of fallen yeah. behind for a while. But I think we're people seem to be quite hopeful that we're getting very much back on track, and hopefully it can go toward the forefront of. So there's a bit of a climate change. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's yes. good to hear. Yes, there's a lot more smiley faces at environmental conferences. It's days. good. It's good to hear that people are focusing on the issue and actually taking it serious. Yeah. Um, so the issue that I find to be very interesting and something that sort of resonated when we were in torts for obvious reasons was uh, this concept of a toxic tort, um, which I found to be very unique and something that I think could be utilized as an avenue for individuals to recover in some way against um, the potential harm of uh, either others or producers of uh, toxic substances. So for someone that has no idea what a toxic tort is, could you explain it? Yes. So, in fact, it's interesting because that term is very uh, well-known and very popular in the United States, but people in Canada aren't familiar with that term, although they're very familiar with what it is when you do unpack it. Fair. So, a tort is obviously some kind of an injury or a wrongdoing happening between parties. And so, what a toxic tort is, something that involves either a chemical product, sometimes even a pharmaceutical product or a Mm -hmm. drug, or some type of pollution that has caused harm and that you're taking a private means to try to compensate for or to prevent. Okay, so what would be an example of a toxic tort? So um, drug, uh, if there's something wrong with the drug and many people get harmed by that drug, then okay. because that's a physical harm to human health, that would be result, looked at as a toxic tort. Or a wide scale pollution, so, that, so sometimes you have an individual incident where, for example, a, a factory might go on fire and mm-hmm. toxic fumes are coming out of it and the people in that area are affected. Or what's more difficult is when you have long-term latent unknown things, so perhaps things are seeping into the ground okay. and nobody's aware of it until you start to see harm several years later. Okay. Um, so those would be the types of cases where toxic torts would be the most successful, essentially. would How would... Uh, an individual go about trying to address um, an issue such as the long-term seeping or sort of uh, precipitating in time uh, harm to them? Right. So what we have found in, in a lot of our work is that when you do have a single incident or a single product that's causing the harm, you do tend to have much more success. So if one drug has harmed a bunch of people in exactly the same way, mm-hmm. then the causation issue does seem to be clearer and you do tend to get um, a, a more positive response from the courts. When you have widespread harm over long periods of time that can cause a bunch of different illnesses, mm-hmm. for example, a bunch of different cancers, then you have a great deal of difficulty in, in succeeding in those areas. Okay. The other thing about them is that they can be extremely expensive because they do involve usually very complicated scientific um, evidence. So the need for expert witnesses is something that is relied upon and, and for a major, major requirement to be successful usually? Yes. And so if you're an individual, if you've only suffered a small amount of harm, it might not be worth litigating. The Fair. cost might exceed the, uh, the benefit even if you win. So that's why you do tend to often see class actions. Okay. in some of the toxic tort areas as well. 
which enables access to justice. Fair. Uh, but sometimes that can cause its own problems because you might ha- it might add to the complexity um, procedurally as well as substantially. In terms of trying to case. apply for a class action yeah. and having it uh, having it ruled in favor of so. Yeah. Um, so, for someone that would be interested in looking at cases of toxic torts, could you suggest any and give a brief summary of why they would be important or why they would be interesting or major successes for the area of uh, area of the law? Yeah, it's actually, well, we happened to mention that we have a book called The Canadian Law of Toxic Torts. There's some really interesting cases, and actually one of my favorite chapters, because it was sort of unusual, was that Professor Collins looked at the history of toxic tort law and found cases from Rome really? and from early England. So this has been around for a long time. Yeah, not okay. this terminology, but yeah, absolutely. And so you can find, and what's interesting is that tort law mm-hmm. was doing environmental protection long before we had any kind of statutes that were protecting mm-hmm. the, the, the environment. Long like There was a big growth of environmental legislation and regulation, say, in the 70s, but tort law had been protecting especially private property for for centuries before that, so that's actually quite interesting. So what did what did it look like in ancient Rome with a, <laughs> with a toxic tort? Sometimes there would have been a law, but sometimes there would just be a rule that you know people got polluted because some manufacturer had you know a smaller scale yeah, manufacturing absolutely. in those days had emitted some kind of substance, and so the justice had to be done. And then again, of course, during the Industrial Revolution, there was such intense and sudden and concentrated pollution because of the sudden growth of industry, and for example in London and parts of England that then some legislation did start to come into place but a lot of people just had to use the the, the torts that existed. So do you think that um, it's legislators that are responding or is it the common law responding to this environmental need? What do you think is the best sort of uh, way to address this issue? That's a great question and there's a constant debate in the literature. Some people are opposed to toxic courts. They call it regulation by litigation. Mm -hmm. And the, some, those who oppose it are saying, well, whoever can afford to take something to court maybe can change the law in their favor, and they're only picking certain issues, whereas a regulator, ideally, mm-hmm. can look at a whole situation in a broader way. They have access to expert scientists. They can consult with people and develop a, a coherent policy that's going to fix it. But, of course, the strength of toxic torts is that if the regular isn't, regulator isn't doing that mm-hmm. or isn't interested in doing that or is doing it poorly then as citizens, you do have this tool that you can take into your own hands and say, well, okay, if you're not going to regulate the pollution going into the river next to my house, I'm going to sue you and, and we're going to get that fixed. So, so it gives the power to people being affected. Yeah, so it really is enabling as a vehicle in terms yeah. of trying to bring accountability and tra- some transparency, I would assume, to emitters or polluters or people bringing harm in this in this specific way. Yes, and of course that other tool of... So, I mean, you hear sometimes... People, for example, Professor Collins and others, Professor Elgie, who've said that, you, um, for example, public interest environmental groups can bring a tort suit even not being sure that they're likely to win. But just by bringing the case forward, you'll get this publicity and you'll get Fair. public awareness. And sometimes the regulator will act when they hadn't been intending to before because of the negative publicity or the public outcry. So really and truly, it is a way to bring pressure even indirectly to the legislator and even for the sake of uh, advertisement, uh, bring forth issues that are important. Yeah. Okay, that's uh, that's very interesting. So, what do you anticipate anticipate to be the biggest challenge facing toxic torts? Well, one of the biggest problems, um, in particular, is within negligence law, 
the issue of causation. Okay. <laughs> and so everybody's familiar with the but-for test, and that has been a really significant barrier because in a lot of toxic tort cases, you have a lot of scientific uncertainty. Okay. So if I'm not sure what caused my cancer, then I can't prove that it was the pollutant next door, and therefore there's no deterrent to them continuing to pollute until we have enough you know, dead bodies yeah. to, to prove, which is sure. not a great way to, Absolutely. to regulate. And so there has been uh, creativity in other jurisdictions in some areas, like the market share liability, where if I can prove that it was that industry that caused mm-hmm. my disease, but I don't know exactly which producer then courts have found that all of the players in that industry are responsible to the extent of their market share unless they can prove that that individual producer wasn't involved. In so a rebuttable case. presumption, essentially, yeah. that's placed on the people that can arguably afford to pay uh, you know, the fines for the cause that they've damaged. Yeah, and, they, and that then puts also more incentive on them to do additional research So because if they can prove mm-hmm. that their product is safe, that's great. So that will incentivize them to, to be as fully um, knowledgeable uh, about, as, as they can about the safety and risks of their product, okay. for example. So that's, that's the, the causation test is, is a significant And issue. the scientific uncertainty, just to be clear, that's the um, essentially the, the standard that, or threshold, I should say, that should be met by, um, or I should say, within the sphere of science to prove that something has causation? That's, is that what it is? Well, that's a really good question because that's what we've been trying to also raise awareness about that, that um, the test, the, the balance, the, the, the burden of proof in tort law is the balance of probability. Mm-hmm. So it's more likely than not that this substance caused your particular problem. Whereas, of course, in science, they tend to have sort of a 99%. Yes, a much higher threshold. Yes, Professor Collins says that they still talk about the theory of gravity as if we're not sure that gravity exists because it's possible somebody might disprove it someday. So that's why it's very important um, for litigators to talk to scientific witnesses to tell them this, we know this is what you do in science. So mm-hmm. if you, if you, when you say you're uncertain, do you, you mean you're only eighty five percent certain? Yes. That's not enough in science, but that's plenty in tort law. Yeah. To prove um, causation on a balance of probability, so it's a very different project as the scientific research versus the legal, at least tort law. Um, so essentially trying to marry the two disciplines together mm-hmm. causes some some real upheaval in terms of toxic torts and trying to prove a case mm-hmm. okay and, and it can, but I think it's improving there's been a lot more dialogue about that there's been uh, there's a new manual on science for judges in Canada they, they, they just came out a few years ago that we were a little bit involved with because the US is on their second edition now I think Wow okay so, so we're a little bit behind. more aware yeah but they're they're very keen to learn and they and uh, because of course Scientific uncertainty and well, at least scientific complexity is not new to lawyers and judges. They have medical malpractice cases all the time. Yeah. So it's just this the the the, the uncertainty of, of a lot of these toxic because there's a real dearth of information about chemicals and their interrelationships. The study of the toxic chemicals out there is not complete at all, so particularly with their interactions. So that's this uncertainty that's okay. difficult. Well, that clears that up. So what do you think the best way to overcome these challenges is? Is it to adopt um, sort of a lesser standard to try to integrate science and the law together to make it more of a standard on a balance of probabilities instead of the scientific uncertainty? Is it the market share model where we're attributing 
the risk or um, you know the the essentially the harm and the damage to the major distributors and having them try to rebut uh, the presumption that they are the ones that cause the scientific damage or the damage I should say right what, what's the best way to well move I think forward? a lot of these things are important it's good to have all of these elements at different stages of the tort I mean I think to to have scientists understand what lawyers mean by uncertainty would be key and not to try to change what they do in science but Fair. to try to and so there have been different attempts like for example the the intergovernmental panel on climate change at the UN they that that that's report includes sort of um, almost like a lexicography like a, a lexicon of what we mean when we say certain or somewhat certain, we mean 65% certain. We've got a, a lawyer dictionary, yeah. basically. so that okay. scientists and lawyers, like a French-English dictionary, yeah. a science maybe, maybe law dictionary. Maybe we should dictionary. work on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very useful. I mean, certainly the precautionary principle, which is a huge principle of international law, mm-hmm. does call for um, one of the elements of that a position is that there should be a... a, um, a uh, Reversal of the burden of proof onto if those who pollute and may be benefiting from the product should have the burden of disproving Mm -hmm. risk. But of course, it's very impossible. I mean, it's very difficult to prove that something is a hundred percent safe. But but at the moment, the burden is on the victim to prove that the thing was dangerous, which is equally difficult. So it is a it is a choice, and it's a social choice about who's going to bear the burden, and which also means who's going to bear the risk. Fair. And so that, that it is a, an important issue. Absolutely. So how do you anticipate, or what I should say, do you anticipate to be the future of toxic torts? And how do you think uh, courts will handle future toxic tort claims with this uh, new political environment and hopefully an initiative towards a more green, sustainable Canada? Um, so for the future of toxic torts, one of the really f- uh, fun areas that was burgeoning a few years ago in the U.S., for example, was the climate change litigation. Mm-hmm. Again, partly out of frustration about the lack of regulation and adequate, you know, regulation of of, GH, uh, of uh, greenhouse gases, etc. So there was a bit of a um, a rash of uh, of climate change toxic tort cases attempted in the U.S. Mm-hmm. None of them were successful for a variety of reasons, but they were claiming nuisance and trespass. They were claiming negligence and a bunch of other interesting um, arguments. Um, and so I think partly it was that the courts were so new to it. Sometimes when you have a new cause of action, it takes the courts a while to get used to it. So continuing to try sometimes moves the courts forward. And there mm-hmm. were elements in a lot of those cases that were little victories, even though they didn't win at the end. Fair. So that was still worthwhile, some would argue. But the Urgenda case was a climate change case, and it was based in negligence, although it is civil law because it was in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm where uh, a public interest group sued the, the, the Dutch government saying your lack of an effective regula- regulatory stance is causing harm to us currently and to future generations and that is negligence. You owe a duty of care to your citizens and, and, they, and they were successful much to wow. their own surprise. That's amazing. Yeah, so I think other jurisdictions are looking into how they can copy that. So we need to sue the government is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. At the, and then again, if even if the government is aware of that potential mm-hmm. that can move them to okay. it's another tool that can move them to regulate more safely another thing um, is that what happened with the tobacco litigation which itself is a toxic tort by the way okay um, when pe- so many people getting sick from tobacco yeah, litigation, from tobacco. there were a whole bunch of, of, of uh, cases brought with varying degrees of success and to the point where because the government um, was paying all these health care costs so then what happened in Canada and some jurisdictions was that 
the provincial governments changed the law, made passed laws making it easier for them to win tort cases against the tobacco companies wow, okay. because they were the ones footing the bill. Yeah. So they changed the burden of proof. They changed some evidentiary rules. They created presumptions in the law just for tobacco litigation. Fair. Okay. So there's a possibility that if the government is the one who ends up paying for washed out roads, washed out bridges, mm -hmm. you know, uh, damage along coastlines because of climate change, that they might get sick of paying and that they Place might... Place the burden back on might, the companies. Through legislation, yeah. they might change some of the rules of the game. It's, for example, causation tests in toxic torts. Interesting. So it's a really exciting time. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the claimants will be able to bring these torts and implement the change that we're looking for in, uh, in towards a more green world. So... One last question. Uh, how would you suggest a law student with limited knowledge about environmental issues or toxic tort claims get involved with this area of the law? Um, and are there any other areas of law which a student could study that could complement studying toxic torts? Absolutely. So if you wanted to be an environmental lawyer, I think tort law is crucial, but administrative law also. Those two... Our key property law can be quite relevant as well. But uh, anytime you're doing anything related to tort law, it's very useful to learn something about insurance law. Okay. Because that can play a very role. The people that are, role. that are bearing the it's costs. It's a lot of money yeah. involved. And in fact, the insurance industry are great lobbyists for climate regulation because they're so afraid of the liabilities. And they understand the what's up. coming. Yeah. The coming storm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so uh, and of course, in a lot of, uh, we're one of the first in Canada, but uh, law schools are starting to offer courses on toxic torts. So okay. we do offer that course. Here, we do offer that. Very special. Okay, so that's an important thing for yeah. any Anyone out there that's attending University of Ottawa, make sure to enroll in the toxic torts class. Yeah. And then, you know, um, business law, we try to suggest that anybody who's taking, you know, international law, business law, that environmental law is, a, is a, an important part of a lot mm -hmm. of those different areas. So e even if you're not in an environmental law course, if you're taking a corporate law course, you might be able to do a paper on, you know, sustainable corporate law. Yeah. That's, it's a very useful uh, thing. So. So yeah, the interconnections is certainly one field of law. It's an interesting time, I think, of contrast because on the one hand, law professors but also law practitioners are becoming more and more specialized mm -hmm. in their area of study. And yet, it's very hard to be an expert on any area of law without knowing about all the linkages to other fields. So really recognizing the interconnectedness of, of the law itself and how it really can lead you down so many different paths. Right. Like, a, for example, loving environmental law, I have almost forgotten I'd taken uh, 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 civil procedure in law school. Yep. I didn't find it very interesting at the time. <laughs> and I ended up writing my PhD thesis on, on how procedural rules can really interfere with environmental justice, like class action rules and laws of standing. Mm -hmm. So they, the interconnection, so that's why uh, they still, we still emphasize a broad-based broad legal education approach. to start with, because there's so many links between different areas, and it's good to have at least a general knowledge of these other fields. So really just try to learn everything you can and expose yourself to as much as possible. Yeah, and have fun. Always have fun. Always have fun. Okay, well, I had a lot of fun with this interview and I really appreciate, and I'm sure the listeners do as well, you sitting down with me and talking about toxic torts. It's been very informative. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com.
If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career Advancing Advice, right to your earbuds.